So yeah, my name's Oli. Um, I have the incredible privilege of being one of the team that, that or one of the leaders in the team that leads this church. And uh, I've got a wife, Debs, and two little wild animals that are uh, my sons. Um, well, Caleb's a boy and Kai's more like an Oompa Loompa, but um, <laughs> they're both very cool uh, and I love them lots. And we have another one on the way, um, if you didn't know. <laughs> and it's a little girl, so I'm super excited about that. Thank you, Lord. Great. So let's, uh, let's get back to Nehemiah. Um, so if you are joining us for the first time this morning, I just want to re-echo that welcome to you. Um, we've been in a series in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah and all the and Ezra for quite a while now. It's been really epic. Um, and so as we launch into the next chapter of Nehemiah this morning, just let's remember where we came from. So we looked at the story of this man, Nehemiah, who was a Jewish man living in exile and whom God stirs a holy discontent with the state of God's city and God's people and how he responds to a call of God to go back and rebuild the city walls and bring reforms and, and basically restore it so that it's God's people dwelling in God's place under God's blessing, which is God's design for humanity. So we looked at a number of things. We looked at how he was a man of prayer and powerful intimacy with God. A man who, as he walked in God's plans, faced resistance and opposition on almost every front. A man who pursued justice and holiness a generous man who ruled for the benefit and blessing of others, not for self-enrichment. And then last week we heard from Doug beautifully about how this Old Testament revival started up. Doug, thank you. Uh, it's so great to have you sharing with us and teaching uh, last week. About how this Old Testament revival started up and how these reforms taking place in Jerusalem and surrounds led to a grassroots level rediscovery of the Word of God. And how this exposure to God's eternal word produced a profound effect on the people. How they became overwhelmed and wept tears of gratitude. And then they began to celebrate these feasts and these festivals that had been forgotten for years. Things which had been intended to root them in their identity as the people of God, the people of the Exodus, whom Yahweh had brought out of slavery and into the promised land. You see, it's the Word of God, the inspired, eternal, inerrant, powerful Word of God alone that reveals to us who God is. Not the God of our making, not the God of our vain imaginations, not the fairy Godfather, Godfather, cosmic butler God, but the real God, the Creator God, the Holy God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the Word of God that reveals to us without embellishment who we are, not who we fancy ourselves to be, but who we really are. And it shows us how God designed his universe to function, the way life was meant to work, and then how God is going to rebuild and restore the brokenness of the world through the Christ. And so through this series, we've read and seen a lot of what Nehemiah and his compatriots did, and it's been incredible, and especially as we've begun to see that Nehemiah was this incredible precursor of the Christ. And we've been tracing these parallels of how as Nehemiah left the comfort of the capital and went into the ruins in the face of massive resistance, began to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem with such a faithful servant heart. So now we have Jesus, the one who left the comfort of heaven and came down into the ruins of this world and laid down his life in order to build these gospel walls, in order to rebuild God's covenant community of faith. 
the church, using living, the living stones of our lives to establish his city, his kingdom on the earth. So now we're in chapter 9. And this revival, as I said, has been going on in Jerusalem. And, and a short time in, the people of Israel are all gathered there. This great assembly, and it's a fast day. And so they're all dressed in sackcloth, like, you know, like the rusters do, like the Hessian bags. or They had like dirt on their heads. And it's a sign of humility before God. They were humbling themselves before God. And it records that they stood for a quarter of a day and read from the book of the law. And then for another three hours, they made confession and worshipped their God. And then what follows is the substantial prayer that they prayed. And so most likely what we have here is a summary of the main prayer points. But I'd like us to read it together. It's chunky. It's a significant section of Scripture in Nehemiah 9. And if you can follow with me from verse 6. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to stop at verse 31. But you can turn there or you can follow on the screen. So they prayed this. You are the Lord. You alone. You've made heaven. The heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And he said, Parasite, whoops. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light them, light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you'd sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed amongst them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness 
The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand. And with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things. Cisterns already honed, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. We're nearly done. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Let's pray quickly. Father, thank you for your word, your eternal life-giving word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit this morning who illumines and teaches us the word. Would you come and be present with us and guide us into all truth as you've promised, Holy Spirit. Would you come and transform our hearts by the renewing of our minds that we might leave here changed in Jesus' name. Amen. So well done for sticking with me. Are you guys all still awake? Do you need to stand and like do some jumping jacks or something? As we read that, what stood out for you? Honestly, the, refla- the refrain that I see repeated over and over again is this. God does good to people. People sin against God. God shows grace and mercy to people. God does good, people sin, God shows grace and mercy to people. 
So there's a lot here about who God is and how good God is. And the first thing I want us to notice is whom they're addressing. You are the Lord. You alone. Creator of heaven, the heaven of heavens. Creator of the earth and all that is on it. Of the seas and all that is in them. And this is so crucial for us to see. This God that they're worshipping is Yahweh. The God who was and who is and who always will be. He's the source of all things. Everything that was made was made by Him. He's not one of many gods. He is the self-sustaining, self-existent God. That means that He doesn't need anyone or anything to go on existing but Himself. Think about that for a moment. Just think about what you need to get through the day. You need food, you need drink, you need clothes, you need shelter, you need transport, you need, if you're anything like me, you need coffee, <laughs> copious amounts of it. You need love and care and an environment that favors life. God doesn't need anything from anyone. God is all that and he is the source of all that. This also means that there are not multiple ways to multiple gods. There is one God who is Lord of all and has revealed himself as such. One of Paul's favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, he's becoming one of my favorites too, says this, Because we are the handiwork of God, it follows that all our problems and their solutions are theological. Some knowledge of what kind of God it is that operates the universe is indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world scene. So Nehemiah reminds us here that we are the handiwork of the Creator God. What else does he tell us? He says, you preserve all of them. Tells us that God is always working, preserving and sustaining the universe and all that he has made. Tells us that the host of heaven worships him. Tells us that he chose Abram and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land. And he says, you have kept your promise for you are righteous. So they're remembering this part of the story because though they've been in exile and they've lost everything, they still have this deep identity of being identified with the God who is both the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God. Do you guys, if you've been around for a while, remember Chanda? He was just such a blessing in our midst. And whenever I prayed with Chanda, I was so blessed and encouraged because you start praying and he just start off, covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And like, just like one line in, I'm so encouraged. I'm so pumped. Like, it's just beautiful, man. And that's his revelation of who God is. And so after everything that's happened, they're still clinging to God. Why? Because he's a God who keeps his promises. And then we see a lot here too about people, about how needy and fickle and selfish and rebellious they are. In a word, how thankless they are. One of our hardest jobs as parents of a four-year-old and a two-year-old is teaching them to say these words, please and thank you. I'm not even kidding. It's a daily battle, multiple times a day. It's like every conversation. But what do you say? Uh, have you forgotten? Please, thank you. It's like, it's unbelievable. And it's been going on for years. Honestly, how hard can it be to say those three words? 
Romans 1 verse 20 to 21 describes this unbelievable thanklessness, this ingratitude towards God as the source and the root of all our problems. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he goes through this long list of stuff that's gone wrong with humankind and it's rooted here. Our failure to honor him as God and give him the thanks that is due to him. That's why it was so beautiful this morning in the words that came and just speaking about gratitude. And that should, that should characterize our worship, gratitude towards this incredible God. And so I'm hope, I hope that you're beginning to see that this story, the story of the people of Israel, is not just their story, it's our story too. We make the same mistakes that they did. Listen, if you're new to church, or if you haven't been around church for long, I'm going to tell you something that will really, really help you. These Christians, we're a proper mess. We are not perfect. We do not fully and perfectly walk out the faith that we profess. We are fickle, sinful, prideful humans. We are broken, and we are just as in need of God's grace as anyone else. Just imagine if you're coming in here and your life is a mess, You're longing to meet with God and all you feel is judgment and condemnation because there's all these pretty holy people around you. How would that go down? You'd run for the door, wouldn't you? No, God's church is full of broken people who need grace so that you would feel right at home here. You would feel welcomed. You would experience grace here. This is a good place to be. Sinners are welcome here. So this morning I want to highlight four promises concerning God's faithfulness that we see in this passage. Four things that the people of God for thousands of years have held onto and rested on and remembered and meditated on despite all manner of trials and circumstances which we can cling onto today as we wrestle with our sin, with our stuff. And the first is this, God knows, God sees, and God cares. God does not abandon his people, and he is always aware of their circumstances. Verse 9, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Verse 28, Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Over and over, throughout the story of Israel, we are taught that God is a God who is faithful to his people, who is aware of their circumstances and sufferings and did not abandon them in those. And this is beautiful for us as followers of Jesus because we have this hope that no matter what we're going through right now in our lives, God is not unaware of it and he has not abandoned you. Maybe you're facing hectic opposition and resistance. Maybe you're dealing with some sickness or tragedy in your life or in someone dear to you. Maybe you're struggling in your job and you're deeply frustrated, disappointed and unhappy. Maybe your marriage is just hard at the moment and you feel exhausted and helpless. Maybe your kids are making choices that have you so worried and anxious and up at night. 
Maybe your finances are under severe pressure and you don't know how to get out of the hole that you're in right now. Maybe you're deeply concerned about the future of our country and the kind of world our kids are growing up in. Maybe you're in a dark place and you feel so alone and helpless. For those of us who are there, Nehemiah's prayer reminds us of this promise given to us by God that he is not unaware of the suffering of his people. God knows, God sees, and God cares for you. He sees you weeping alone in the dark and his heart breaks for you. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you. Isaiah 38 verse 5 says, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. And then there's a few more scriptures that you can take down and go home and meditate on until this truth settles deep into your heart that God knows, God sees, and God cares. If you want to write them down, it's Genesis 16, verse 13 to 14. Psalm 23, Psalm 50, verse 15. Psalm 57, verse 2 to 3. Psalm 139, verse 7 to 12. John 14, verse 16 to 20. Revelation 21, verse 3 to 4. If you didn't get all those, just speak to me afterwards. I'm happy to send you you a list. But it's so good to meditate on this truth. Because God, like Hagar, who had run away into the wilderness when she'd um, been rejected by Sarah, and she's weeping, the God who, who hears her and sees her appears to her and reveals himself to her. And just, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're on the run. Maybe you are weeping by the well, and you need to know that God sees you. Second thing we see in the scripture is that God guides and instructs his people. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made, them know, made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. Verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Have you ever been in a place where you don't know what to do next? You don't know which road to take? You don't know what decision to make? Maybe you can't even see the way out. Or maybe you're confronted with a bunch of options that look sort of equally good and you just don't know which one is right, which one is God's best for you. Maybe you're there right now. You need to make a decision. What do you do? This passage gives us good news. It reminds us that God is a God who engages, guides, leads, and instructs his people in a multitude of ways. It says that he gave his good spirit to them. How we need the Holy Spirit, guys. If you have believed into Christ, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Then you have the assurance that He dwells in you to help you, counsel you, guide you, teach you, empower you, and take the things of Christ and make them known to you. It says that God also gave them the law at Mount Sinai. The law spells out what God has for you. It is God's intent and his blueprint for what human life should look like in order for it to truly flourish. 
The law doesn't save us. We know this. Only Jesus saves us. Only Jesus makes us right with God. But when we are saved by grace and we live in love and walk in step with the Holy Spirit, almost by accident we end up obeying the law. As Paul says in Romans 13 verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We also see God guiding his people in these miraculous, overt ways. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. That would be so cool, right? <laughs> if you're like, what decision should I make? Like, where should I go? Oh, cool, there's the pillar. I'm going I'm to follow that. Anyway, so God is clearly a God who guides, instructs, and leads his people. He does not abandon us. So what has God given us today to guide us? First and foremost, he's given us the word of God. As I said earlier, the word of God, the Bible, is given us to reveal to us who God is, who we are, and how God designed life to work, right? We believe that this collection of inspired writings by various human authors over hundreds of years is inerrant. It's inspired by God's Spirit, and it alone is the ultimate authority in these matters. All of the Bible points to Christ, who is our only hope of salvation, and the one through whom all of creation will ultimately be renewed and restored. And we cannot find our way in this life without taking God's Word seriously and acknowledging its rightful place over our lives in principle and in practice. He's given us His Word. He's also given us his spirit, his presence with us. John 14 is a powerful chapter on the role of the Holy Spirit. If you are wondering and wrestling with who the Holy Spirit is and what he does, go and read John chapter 14. Jesus tells us here that he has not left us as orphans, but he's given us the helper, the spirit of truth, to be with his people forever. And his job is to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, amongst other things. He's given us his word, he's given us his spirit, his presence, and he's given us the church, the covenant community of faith. This is a big one and one that today is largely neglected and ignored in our culture that celebrates hyper-individualism as the highest of all values. The reality is the Bible doesn't give us specific instructions for every decision we face. It doesn't tell us whether we should take the job in Stellenbosch or the job in Joburg. It doesn't tell us, you know, in some cryptic code, the name of the person that we are supposed to marry. And it doesn't matter how well you know the Scriptures. There are some things where we need to take the principles of wisdom in the Scriptures and acknowledging our dependence on the Holy Spirit, bring them before the covenant community of God to help us discern and interpret these things into what we do and decide. But today, we largely ignore this gift. As uh, Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in the States, says, we try to take this idea of covenant community and make it covenant individual. But the problem is God didn't design the Christian walk to be walked alone. It really doesn't work when we try to do that. God's not into spiritual superstar individuals. He's into building a people who will together trust him, demonstrate his ways, and carry his message and presence into the communities and nations of the world in order to transform and renew it. I always have this picture of Billy Graham. We all know Billy Graham, the famous preacher. And yes, he is a great preacher. But 
What, how far would Billy, Billy Graham have gotten if it hadn't been for the hundreds or perhaps thousands of people who were there setting up the crusades, doing all the work and logistics and all the stuff that needed to happen in order for him to be able to get up on a stage and preach? I'm telling you, <laughs> it would have been nowhere near as effective. And so we need the community of God. So let me ask you this morning, where are you in this? Are you genuinely in community? Are there people who know you, who know your story well enough to safeguard you from temptation, to lovingly confront you when you're in sin, to help you walk in obedience, to use your gifts, to persevere in your walk of faith? Are you meaningfully and consistently connected into a small group, into relationships? Who's praying for you? Who's discipling you? Who are you praying for? Who are you discipling? Who have you invited to speak into your life? These are important questions. And it's not going to be easy. And it's not going to happen in one day. You're going to have to learn how to show grace, how to forgive. You're going to have to lose your pride and open your heart. You're going to have to face your fears and let go of past hurts. It's going to be uncomfortable and inconvenient. But I guarantee you this, the blessings that flow into your life will be innumerable. That's been my experience as I've embraced the people of God and community in my life. Thirdly, God provides for his people. In verse 20 it says, And it did not withhold your manna from their mouth and give them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And so we see in this text how God faithfully provides for His people, for their physical needs. Our God is a generous God and a good Father. He delights to give His children good things. And so God provided repeatedly, miraculously, and abundantly for His people in this story. He is faithful, and He does not abandon us in our need. However, with that, I need to say that there may be some of us here who have confused wants with needs. I remember Pete Howard Brown, who used to lead uh, New Gen back in the day, saying, God promised you bread, not prawns. It stuck with me. God gives what you need, not based on your perception, but on His. And so don't think you have a right to feel robbed by God because He hasn't given you something He never promised to give you. Your being a good moral person doesn't mean that God owes you everything you want and think you need or think you deserve. It's not some transactional thing. Chandler again says this so well. Trust me on this. You don't want what you deserve. You want what you don't deserve here. Which brings us to the fourth and final promise. And it's this. God is gracious, merciful, and ready to forgive. Verse 17 writes, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. If you know where this is rooted, it comes from Exodus 34, when God revealed himself to Moses. Just after Moses came down from Mount Sinai to find the people cavorting and sinning and worshipping the golden calf, 
And he had the tablets in his hands and he smashed them in a dramatic display of the fact that God's people had broken God's laws. But instead of abandoning his people and wiping them out right there and then, God calls Moses back up. He says, bring some more tablets. And then he passes before Moses and he declares this. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. And there and then God renews the covenant with them. Yes, he disciplines the sons he loves. He disciplines them, but he has mercy on his sinful, rebellious people. And this is what Nehemiah is picking up on here. As we said earlier, the story of the people of Israel, as it's traced here, is the story of God doing good to his people. His people repeatedly growing ungrateful, presumptuous, stiff-necked, arrogant, and blasphemous. Giving the credit that belonged to God to other things. Turning their hearts away from him who had been so faithful to them. And how did God respond to these stiff-necked, rebellious, arrogant people who just kept seesawing from trusting him to not trusting him, from trusting him to not trusting him? He responded again and again by showing them mercy and giving them grace. That means not giving them what they deserved. And then giving them what they didn't deserve. Over and over again in these verses, spanning hundreds of years, it tells us how God habitually responded to the fickleness of his people. He extended mercy. He showed them grace. He heard their cries. He did not forsake them. And isn't the same true for us today? It's the same God. The God we cling to has revealed his character to us. He is a God of grace and mercy, abounding in steadfast love. Do you need mercy this morning, anyone? Do you know you're messed up and need grace? Well, this is who you can come to right now. Our God is a merciful God. How do I know that? Because mercy is not just something that God does. Mercy is who God is. It's a character trait of God. It's an attribute of His. God is the God who shows mercy to the undeserving. And we dare not forget this, ever. If I can quote A.W. Tozer again. Mercy never began to be, but from eternity was. So it will never cease to be. It will never be more, since it is itself infinite. And it will never be less because the infinite cannot suffer diminution. Nothing that has occurred or will occur in heaven or earth or hell can change the tender mercies of our God. Forever his mercy stands, a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. We must believe that God's mercy is boundless, free, and through Jesus Christ our Lord, available to us now in our present situation. 
So I think this is an incredible place to end in communion and celebrating the mercies of God extended to us in Jesus Christ. The same God who repeatedly showed mercy to the people of Israel over hundreds of years of their sin and unfaithfulness is here this morning, speaking to us through his word and his spirit, urging us as we confess our own sin and unfaithfulness before him to remember Jesus. He is the ultimate culmination of God's mercy towards sinners. Because of Jesus, God doesn't give us what we deserve, eternal exile from his presence. He shows us mercy. He absorbs the punishment that we deserved. And on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by his Father so that we would never have to be. And then God gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us grace. He includes us in Christ's righteousness and in his reward. Paul writes in the letter to the Corinthians, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. He includes us in Christ's inheritance. We are called co-heirs with him. We share in his rewards. And so, Let's get the elements, and then I'd like us to return to our seats, and and we're going to pray together. I just want to stress that the uh, sacrament of communion is for believers. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you're a believer, don't take communion. This is for believers. This is for followers of Jesus. If you want to come to Jesus this morning for the first time, and you want to give your life to him, and you want to respond to the mercy that he's showing you right now, then you can come and you can grab this and you can take it with gratitude. The bread and the juice which which symbolize and which represent the body of Christ broken for us on the cross where he was separated from God so that we could be reconnected to God. Where his blood was poured out and shed for our cleansing, our redemption, the washing away of our sins. And so as we do that, I want us to be aware of of the fact, like these people, as they prayed this prayer, a prayer of confession, a prayer of humbling themselves before God, that we have stuff that we need to bring to God. As I've been speaking this morning, maybe you're aware of things in your life that you know you need mercy in. You need grace. God is offering you those things, but he wants you to be real and honest with him. He wants you to come and confess your sins to him and confess your need to him. Don't play games with God. He wants you to be true. He wants your heart. So come and do that. Come and and as you stand and as you take these elements in your own space with God, confess those things that need to be confessed. And let God bring the mercy and the cleansing that he so delights to bring. And I realize that there are some things that we might need to process with people and we might, there's tremendous power in confessing our sins to, to one another. If you, you want to do that, please feel free to grab a friend and say, hey, I'd like you to just pray through this thing with me. So you can do that as well. But I'll, or we just do it in your own space with God. But you can come up now, grab the elements, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Thanks.